Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May the 31st, 2019. This is episode 2450 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for an expert counsel show, but I think the bigger deal today is it's May 31st. May is gone. It's gone. June is the sixth month. The end of June will be the midpoint of 2019. Half the year is gone. Tick tock, tick tock, guys. The clock ticks for us all. Um, you you got to get out and start building the life you want. You have to. Because I've been saying this now for 11 years. It doesn't even seem crazy. We're coming up in uh, G20 days. 20 days from now. Survival Podcast will be 11 years old. 11 years. Went by like that. I'm glad I spent these 11 years doing this show. I'm glad I spent these 11 years encouraging people to be prepared, but more than anything else, to build self-sufficiency and self-reliance in their life. I feel like I've spent those 11 years well, but I ain't done yet. And I'm going to be trying to do something every day to help others, and something every day to help me get a little closer to where I want to be in my life. I hope you are too, because half a year almost just went like that. Make the most of your dash, folks. Sorry to kick you in the head with it on the intro, but, you know, it is what it is, and time is going to keep moving, whether we talk about it or not, and whether we act or not. So what are we going to be talking about today? Well, i got a good lineup with the expert counsel. And I got a new thing for you that I'm really excited about, and I've got some thoughts on social media and where we're going with our plans of the future here. First up, last week I handled a question for somebody who called in and wanted to know about dealing with state level versus local law enforcement. In their case, uh, where they lived in their area, their, their, their law enforcement organization that would cover where they actually live was the state troopers of Pennsylvania. And in Pennsylvania, those state troopers are a lot like we would call what the sheriff's deputies do here in Texas. So I, I did that. Officer Steve Wise, who is a retired law enforcement officer out of Georgia, uh, with a hell of a track record and a background and a lot of knowledge, decided to give a little bit more information about how law enforcement jurisdictions are drawn up, uh, how they're assigned. Uh, what they mean and what they don't mean. So we'll start off with that. Nicole Sauce has an answer for Jake, who has yet another question. Uh, I like to poke Jake on that, but it's a good question. Jake is needing to upgrade his WordPress themes, uh, but his, his WordPress theme on his website is concerned he might upgrade it, and then it might screw things up. So Nicole's going to talk about how to alleviate that concern. Uh, next up, we're going to have a discussion on encouraging proper thyroid health with old Doc Bones, if he can get out of bed long enough to talk about it. Uh, Jeff Lawton's going to answer some stuff on dealing with mosquitoes, and I'm going to give you a couple additional resources and ways to think about the mosquito issue, especially this year. Uh, there's been more rain this year than there has in a long time in a lot of parts of the country, uh, and even where it's not to the point of true flooding, we have a lot of flooded fields. We have a lot of standing water for long enough for uh, the 80s aegypti and other mosquito varieties to reproduce. 
Uh, so they are making life miserable. Jeff will talk about how to deal with that on your property. Uh, then I'm sure all of you have heard, the yield curve is inverted. We're going to have a recession. Are we? Well, maybe, maybe not. But what the hell is an inverted yield curve, and why should you care? No less than John Pugliano himself is going to talk to us about that. Then I've got two things for you today. Number one, and I'm really excited about this, and I found this from a former guest of the show named Brian Norton, uh, who was on and talked about uh, his company, Food Forest Farms, and CBD oil, and his coffee that is CBD-infused, which is also available uh, in the MSB at a discount. He just turned us on to something over on the MeWe group called Airbnb Experiences. This is cool, and if you're a person that travels a lot, you may want to take advantage of it, and if you're a person looking for a side hustle, this is literally the side hustle that I've talked about dozens of times made scalable with a marketplace. You're going to love this. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about social media, Facebook censorship, and MeWe Mondays. I alluded to this last week. This week we're officially announcing it. We're doing it. We're already off to a gang busters start. And I've got more thoughts on this. And I want to invite you this coming Monday, 10 a.m. to 10.30 Central Standard Time, my time. Whenever I say time, I mean my time, okay? I can't cover all the time zones. And uh, I will be in the MeWe chat in the Survival Podcast Hangout. I'll tell you all about that more uh, when we wrap up today. Before we uh, get Officer Steve on, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the YouTube channel of the week. Every Friday I want to bring you guys a YouTube channel. And I've said I do want to give you channels that are outside of gardening, permaculture, homesteading. I don't want every single one to be that because there's a lot of stuff in the world. We talk about so much here on the show because skill set and knowledge, uh, financial management, all of these things are important to self-sufficiency and self-reliance, not just growing your own food. But I also want to cover, cover a lot of those. I mean, it's one of the biggest passions in my life is growing my own food. So I was looking through the suggestions today, and I had like five people send in suggestions in the last uh, week for YouTube channels of the week. And out of the five, four people recommended this guy named Joe uh, James Pregoni, who has a channel called The Gardening Channel. He grows uh, food forests in his backyard in New Jersey. Now, when, when four separate people mention the same guy, kind of feel like I needed to get him on the air. So I checked out his channel. Dude is high energy. He's excited about what he's doing. And God, you know, there's a lot of things that I hate about New Jersey, but when it comes to a climate for growing food, my God, there is a reason they call it the Garden State. If you take check out this dude's channel, you are going to really like it. You're probably going to become a subscriber. Again, it's called The Gardening Channel with James Pregoni, and it's P-R-I-G-I-O-N-I. It's our YouTube channel of the week recommendation. Check him out. And I guess I, I really should start promoting my channel of the week on social media. And we'll talk about what that means at the end of the show. But now we're ready to get into uh, this. Again, so I want to start off with Officer Steve Wise, retired law enforcement officer here, talking about how different jurisdictions are set up and what that means and who enforces the law in them and what it means to you. Officer Steve, how does this big rigmarole mess work out anyway? Good evening, Jack and TSP listeners. This is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement officer that answers your law enforcement-related questions. 
Uh, remember, the laws do vary from state to state, so please make sure you check with your local attorneys uh, for any legal advice. Jack, you had a call the other day uh, where a listener was asking about the difference between local law enforcement unit and the state troopers in Pennsylvania. Jack, uh, you obviously have the local information related to that situation, and I understand that. But I think it's also important to point out a few details that I think will help everybody and maybe expand this a little bit more. First, one of the major issues to remember is that all law enforcement jurisdictions are contained inside a political subdivision. This is basically the boundary in which the law enforcement officers can enforce the laws. These boundaries are created by politicians, and this is where things can get very confusing. Let's say we start a new state, and that new state uh, we elect a governor, and that governor then has some other elected officials around him, and now they decide how the laws are going to be enforced and, and who's going to perform those actions. So our new state decides to create the state troopers. The boundary is, of course, the boundary of the state. So the state troopers know exactly where they're going to enforce their laws. But the governor and the politicians will decide exactly which laws that they're going to let them enforce. So, for example, they could say state troopers will only enforce traffic laws on the state highways. This would be a very limited jurisdiction. What if a state trooper, you know, found some drugs or a murderer or fraud or something else? They wouldn't technically be able to investigate that. So normally these boundaries can be even more confusing. State troopers could be empowered to enforce all laws anywhere in the state unless they're in a jurisdiction that's got another law enforcement agency in there. So, so a state trooper isn't enforcing any laws within inside of a city, um, but you step outside the city boundary and now the, the trooper can enforce, oh, but wait, it's inside of a county border, so I can't enforce that. And that county has a, tr- uh, a law enforcement officer, so I can't enforce there. And you see how this can get very confusing. And our federal government does the same thing. You know, hey, once again, it's created by politicians. Why do you think? So this is why we have the ATF, DEA, ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, FBI, Secret Service. Each of these law enforcement agencies have different laws they can enforce. An ATF agent is not going to be investigating a fraud case. I'm sorry, they're just not going to. They're not allowed to. An ICE agent isn't going to do any investigations over weapons or explosives. This, that's outside their, their boundaries. The only exception to this law, and you can thank J. Edgar Hoover for this, is he set the FBI up so that they can enforce all laws. So an FBI agent can enforce everything. Everybody else has a very limited set of laws that they can enforce. So let's go back to our local governments and their law enforcement agencies. And you might think uh, about something that's come up in the media recently about a lot of uh, people out west. You hear them saying, hey, the sheriff is standing up to what they believe are unconstitutional laws, and they're saying they're not going to enforce them. A sheriff is actually a very unique uh, in the fact that they are an elected official. And as such, they're considered a constitutional officer. And the only way you can remove a sheriff is by election or through special recalls that, that normally is tied to something like uh, criminal charges or civil charges against the sheriff. So a governor who doesn't like the sheriff's decision can't just fire him. They have to bring him up on charges and, and get him uh, recalled from office. 
So why is it different out west in some of these places than it is in some other states like Georgia, for example? Uh, well, we can thank the politicians for that answer. Politicians decided a long time ago in a lot of jurisdictions that they certainly couldn't just fire a sheriff, so they wanted to put control on what the sheriffs could enforce within their jurisdiction. This is why, this is why you have uh, sheriffs controlling things like a jail. Because, you know, hey, who cares if a sheriff wants to investigate a crime that's committed by people that are already in jail? So, Politicians also don't always get around along with their law enforcement partners. So it's not uncommon to see them, you know, after, especially after an election where they fire a chief of police. Um, back in the seventies, a newly elected mayor in Atlanta decided he wanted to fire the chief of police, but that chief of police refused to be fired because he said he had a contract and he couldn't be fired. It got bad enough. The mayor actually sent police officers to remove the chief of police. <laughs> so what did the chief of police do? He called police officers to protect him in his office. Well, after a tense standoff, the mayor actually gave in. He let the chief keep his job. But the mayor did, using his political action, decided, decided to change it from the Atlanta Police Department to the Atlanta Police Bureau. And then, since it was now the Atlanta Police Bureau, he hired a police commissioner. And that police commissioner was put over the whole department including the chief of police. So the mayor got his way ultimately. So your local law enforcement officers are going to be limited to their jurisdiction, but and they may be limited to what laws specifically they can enforce based on these political decisions. And since this varies from political jurisdiction to the next, you really need to understand what you are getting and, and when you go into a particular area, you're going to have to perform some research on what they can actually enforce. It may explain to you why you might see a state trooper drive by an accident, or maybe they pull over to the accident and they wait for another jurisdiction to show up and then hand off the the, the information, um, you know, because they can't enforce any of the laws, so they don't really want to get involved in that traffic accident. They can't enforce it. So uh, you may also see uh, officers that, uh, um, you know, they're just like, they stay off the highways. They're only on the surface streets because they've been restricted from doing any traffic enforcement on the highways. So there's lots of this stuff going on. So anyway, if you're, if you really don't like that, you can thank your politicians. So with that, I'm sending it back to you, Jack. So there is just one thing I want to make sure is clear here. There are, there are definitely definitive boundaries of jurisdiction territories and there are definitely some definitive boundaries over what particular uh, Leos investigate or take a case on for, things like that. But, I mean, there are people that literally think this way. If I'm in, you know, uh, Kennesaw County, and the Kennesaw County Sheriff Deputy is chasing me, like Dukes of Hazard back in the 80s, and I can outrun him and I make it to the county line, Unless he's got the other sheriff from an adjoining county there about to arrest me for it, he can't pursue me. That's not how that works. You can be pursued and detained. First of all, you and I'm not saying it should be this way. I'm saying it is not you know a case for or against. A case for what is. You can be pursued. First of all, you committed the infraction that you were being pursued for, 
in, in the county where the officer has jurisdiction. Second of all, he can detain you then and request assistance from somebody that has jurisdiction wherever you've made it to. And then you can be held accountable for your violations in both places. So if anybody has this uh, this this fantasy, uh, like Dukes of Hazard, like fantasy, uh, made it over the county line, county mountain can't follow me. That is not how that works. That's not how any of this works. So uh, there you go. Uh, next up, we have a uh, a piece from Nicole Sauce on the uh, can be intimidating process of deciding to update uh, WordPress themes, especially when you've done significant modica- modifications to appearances of sites and stuff like this. I know um, I used to really love, and I wouldn't use it today, but back in the day, it was one of the best themes out there for building websites with WordPress. It was called a kismet. And, uh, you know, this is before everybody had a smartphone and all, so it wasn't a smart, adaptable theme or anything. But, boy, if, if it didn't just lose every bit of customization every time you did an update to it to where you didn't want to do it. So have things changed? How do we mitigate these things? Because a lot of times themes, um, when, when WordPress comes out with new versions, if you don't up the theme, you could have uh, conflicts where it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And the other thing that could happen is that you might have security problems. Uh, a lot of times designers update themes because they figure out there might have been a security problem And by the time they figure it out and update it, that means people know. So they go out and look for people using the outdated theme. So, Nicole, what are we going to do about all this? Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here with a question from Jake. Why does this Jake guy keep coming up anyway? Actually, he is a real Jake. He's a real person. He's a great guy. He asks, should I update my Genesis theme for my WordPress site? And if so, how do I prevent unintended consequences? So I use WordPress for my land flipping website and I use the Genesis theme and have purchased a theme that requires, it's a theme engine and it requires Genesis. I have just received notice that Genesis has an update. I am fearful if I update it, my site will go wonky. I've had a distasteful experience in the past. Well, Jake, haven't we all? I updated a different site and a new update totally screwed it up The lo- and I had to review, re- revert it and ignore future updates because I was not tech savvy enough to fix it. I don't want to miss out on potential improvements. How do I navigate this so I don't have the same problem? Maybe a more general question that could apply to more listeners is how do you or how do any all updates, uh, how do you do updates on WordPress and make sure you don't crash and burn? Well, Jake, that's a great question. Every time there's a major update on any site I'm working on, I worry a little bit. And if it's a major theme update, or even if it's just WordPress going from one version to another, or a big plugin update, I have a tendency to look at it and then read a little bit about the update, what the update is, and if it has any incompatibility. So with Genesis, you should be able to go and just compare it, see, okay, is it compatible with the version of WordPress I'm on? Is it compatible with the version of PHP I'm on? And is it compatible with my plugins? From there, once I'm fairly confident it'll work, and you know what, guys? The plugin that I most often will get in the way is my shopping cart. So usually when a new update comes out for something, it's usually WordPress and not a theme, there'll be about a two-week lag before my shopping cart updates. So then I'll, I'll wait two weeks for my shopping cart to update, and then I'll install the update. However, let's say you do all that, 
You decide, yep, I'm going to update this thing. What you want to do is a full backup of your website housed somewhere else. I use the Updraft uh, plugin for this for sites that are not hosted on WP Engine. And I save a copy of it either to Google Drive or Dropbox so that if something goes wrong, I can just switch back to what I had. Once the backdate is, uh, the backup is done, then I will install the update and test the site. And as you mentioned, sometimes when you do that, things go ape crazy, right? Like stuff's walking all over the page. You can't even get to your back end again, whatever the problem is. If that happens, you go and you revert to your backup. If for some reason it has nuked your back end and you can't do that, you call your host and you have them revert to the backup that you have. Okay. Now let's talk about why this might happen. Almost a hundred percent, say 99.999% of the time in a theme update, if it's not working right, it's a plugin incompatibility. And so if I see that my website has turned into a monster, if it's not an urgent website, like NicoleSauce.com, if you go there, it, yeah, it's no blog I had that I haven't updated for years, but I update the, uh, I haven't put, you know, new posts, but I, I still have the website that's still out there. If that one's crawling over the place, I don't stress. It's not a big deal. Nobody really goes there anyway. It's not, doesn't get much traffic. So I'll go in and I'll disable all my plugins and then I'll enable them one at a time to test and see which one doesn't work. The one that doesn't work, you then have a decision. If there's no update available, you can revert back to the old version until they have an update available, or you can pay somebody to fix the problem for you, or you can find another plugin that does the same thing that is compatible with your website. So guys, WordPress updates, so it's important to keep them up to date because if you don't, often there's a security vulnerability that can be taken advantage of and you don't want to have your site filled with malware and to get blacklisted because that really stinks, right? But at the same time, updates are no laughing matter and you do want to be careful as you're going through and updating to make sure you always, 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 by the way, always have a backup before you start it so that you can revert back if there's a problem, and then check your plugins. If that's not the problem in a theme update, Jake, specifically, I would see if your theme update, you know, if it's a version of WordPress, like if you update in to the latest version of WordPress and then you update your theme, maybe your theme's actually only compatible with the one right before. Like a, a version just came out, I think this week, as a matter of fact. So hope that helps you out, Jake. If you need any help, navigating that, you know how to reach me. You probably could maybe outsource that to a web developer you know. Anyway, guys, if you want to know more about me, you can have a, head over to livingfreeintennessee.com, and that's where my podcast is, as well as links to all my other enterprises. Jack, thanks for the awesome show, and everyone, go out and make it a great week. Um, one thing Nicole didn't talk about in there that really bears talking about with this for many people like Nicole and myself that have been using WordPress since, you know, it was a competitor to things like Blogspot and people actually used Blogspot by choice, etc., uh, is that when we started building our own sites and blogs based on WordPress, a lot of the features that are wonderful features that you have today, we didn't have. And everything from installation to upgrades to theme installs to plug-in installs 
wasn't done in the WordPress back end. We used a, you know, an FTP program and we used FTP or file transfer protocol to do all of these things. FTP is not difficult. If you've never used it, it sounds complicated. If you can drag shit from one folder on your computer to another folder on your computer, you can use FTP because that's all that it is. Your website, if you own your own website on your own domain, lives on a computer somewhere. And those files are put into folders and directories that work just like they do on your, your hard drive or your computer. And what FTP does is says, here's your computer, here's your website. And you do have to learn little things like, okay, everything's in the public HTML folder and, you know, this thing goes into WP content and this thing, particular thing goes into WP themes and this is how you, you know, execute that once it's in there and what have you, but it's not hard. And I'm going to tell you right now that when I do upgrades, I install new themes and stuff like that, I don't do that anymore, but I know how. I know how to do that. And the reason that is so powerful is what Nicole said about having a backup. So I have the most recent version of this theme, for instance, that I'm using. And it says update theme in the back end of WordPress. And I click a button and it just happens. And then it all goes to googly goop shit. And now I, maybe I can't even get to my back. Like That kind of stuff does happen. Well, now I just pull up my FTP program delete that directory and upload the new, the old one, and it all goes back to the way that it was. And so there's a lot of power in knowing how to do that. So I would advise you, if you're using WordPress and you're doing your own updates and everything, either learn how to do that or have someone you can go, help me, help me, and they'll come do it for you, right? You're like, it's Just make sure you have the backup copies and stuff like that. And if you're not sure how to fix it, as long as you have the stuff, They can fix it for you. Just wanted to throw that in there. Next up, I got a question for old Doc Bones on maintaining good thyroid levels. Bones, what's up, man? Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Also, the new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, plus the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Kaylee, who writes... Do you have any home remedies or tips to encourage healthy thyroid function for someone on the fringes of normal range? On the recommendation of a nurse friend at my last annual physical, I requested a full thyroid panel from my primary care provider as I have several of the symptoms of hypothyroidism. My PCP opted to instead to run just TSH and T4, which came back as normal, so that was the end of it from their perspective. However, upon my personal research, I am questioning it further. According to Dr. Google, the clinic I go to uses a wider range for TSH, and my numbers are just outside the recently updated parameters and not historically consistent. The ratio of the two tests, low TSH and low T4, also do not make sense to me, and actually that is a little unusual. I am strongly opposed to the idea of sitting around waiting for it to get worse before taking action to be healthier. Are there any at-home remedies to boost healthy thyroid function instead of waiting to go over the line to be eligible for medication, which I would rather avoid anyway? 
Also, are ratios and historical data something to sound alarm bells or am I overthinking things? Further, here's some personal details. TSH historically tested in 2007 was 1.35. Most recent tests in September, it was 0.47, which is a little bit on the low side. Free T4 thyroxine tested in September was 0.85 and was not previously tested. I'm currently 30 years old, female, no diagnosed family history of thyroid disease. However, I only know 50% of my family history medically, and my birth mother has a similar health issue, symptomatic with normal ranges on basic tests. Thank you for your help and sharing your knowledge. Sincerely, Kaylee. Kaylee, hypothyroidism is caused by a disorder of the endocrine system, the hormonal system in which the thyroid gland does not produce enough thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone is required for the normal functioning of a lot of different tissues in the body, and over time it can cause a number of diverse symptoms, almost too many to name, but I'll give you a list of some. Dry, coarse skin, extreme sensitivity to cold, hair loss, constipation, depression, weight gain, a hoarse voice, menstrual irregularities, swollen limbs and face, hearing problems, and gosh, many, many more. You don't mention in your email what hypothyroid symptoms you're actually having, so it's hard for me to comment on that. Thyroid tests that come out close to the abnormal range should always be repeated and followed on a regular basis. Your test in 2007, well, having a test in 2007 and then again in 2019, not frequent enough if you're having concerns about your thyroid. Of course, results that are clearly out of range and indicating low thyroid should be treated with replacement thyroid hormone, thyroxine, as soon as possible. Often dosages will need adjustment before you get to the amount that's right for you. If results are not clearly abnormal, I'd stay off the pharmaceuticals. Your results don't particularly throw up any red flags, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a problem. Your symptoms should be monitored closely, and you know there are other possible causes for a lot of them, so those should be ruled out. Can certain foods increase thyroid function? Most, but not all, in conventional medicine say no, but there are foods that may depress thyroid function. These include cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, spinach, broccoli, and cabbage. I'd stay away from those as a precaution. Foods that are thought by some to boost thyroid function include omega-3s in fish, selenium in tree nuts, whole grains, berries, dairy, beans, and seaweed. Seaweed actually contains iodine. For normal function of the thyroid, you need adequate dietary iodine. And in developed countries, iodine deficiency is very rare as many foods and seasonings like salt are quote-unquote iodized. Eating a balanced diet usually makes taking supplemental iodine unnecessary. As a matter of fact, too much iodine can cause hyperthyroidism in some people. Avoiding dietary extremes, to me, is a good idea. There are many thyroid supplements available, but their effectiveness isn't, for the most part, backed by hard scientific data. But your experience may vary. I might keep some of these around for use in survival scenarios, but not necessarily normal times. If you have hypothyroidism, take replacement hormone only as directed by your doctor on an empty stomach and monitor those thyroid levels regularly. You should know that too much dietary fiber can actually impair the absorption of any synthetic thyroid hormone. Certain foods, supplements, and medications can have the same effect, so you'd have to discuss those with your healthcare provider if, indeed, you wind up having to be on those medicines.
10 million people have clinical hypothyroidism in the United States, and it's thought by some that 10% of women may have some aspect of it. Your concerns, Kaylee, are valid, but monitoring your symptoms over time is probably the best policy for now. Nurse Amy experienced something like you, slightly off thyroid results, and went on medicines and actually felt worse. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and our new Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of books, medical kits, and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right. Now, as I was saying during the intro segment, this year we've gotten a lot of rain, a lot a lot, a lot of rain in the country, and it just seems to keep coming. And for some people, it's an absolute disaster. There are entire towns that have been flooded out. But, uh, you know, another uh, far less troubling but still very annoying component of this has been mosquitoes. And then there are certain properties, even when it doesn't rain any more than normal, they're just havens for mosquitoes. So with that in mind, let's hear from Jeff Lawton on mosquito control. Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And I have a question here about mosquitoes, which is the number one question in the permaculture world, actually, because people don't seem to understand mosquitoes much anymore. So um, we have somebody here who has a real problem with uh, biting midges, biting gnats, what they call punkies, apparently, and sandflies and mosquitoes. Um, they have a property that um, holds a lot of water, and moisture and biting insects make it unbearable spending any length of time outside. They prefer to use natural methods to reduce the population, uh, such as habitats for natural predators. And uh, it's their first year on the property and they're hanging up bat boxes, bird feeders, uh, planting flowers that attract uh, birds, bees and other predatory insects. Um, so the only predator they know of uh, of biting insects are bats. But there are lots. There are lots of birds that eat uh, insects. And um, there's lots of uh, reptiles and amphibians too. Um, and so, you know, you've got lizards um, that eat uh, insects and you've got a lot of frogs that eat uh, insects. And then you have things like uh, other predatory insects, like dragonflies are actually... Uh, Predators, they have like big grappling hooks on their back legs and they snatch them out of the air, which is quite dramatic if you, were, if you had good enough eyesight to see it. Um, but the issue you have here is you have a lot of small standing water that probably dries out and then holds for a while, but it's not large enough to hold um, fish. So fish don't eat mosquitoes so much, but they, they eat the larvae, so they stop the breed cycle. But you might be in a huge area or a swamp. So um, if you had a lot more ducks, uh, also domestic ducks eat a lot of insects. But um, let's get to the design side of things. In this case, you don't need to hold any more water. You've got enough water. What you need to do is concentrate water into ponds where you can hold fish, which means you, instead of swells, you probably need to set up drains to drain off the property so you don't have the small amounts of water. You concentrate the water to large areas of water. Now, if you're in such flat country, it's usually flat anyway, what you dig is what you get. So you dig a hole, it fills with water from underneath. So you don't need that sealer dam. It's coming in from underneath. That's it. Sorry, wrong terminology, pond uh, for America. So you don't need the, dr the switch sealer pond 
it'll just fill on its own from from the subsurface water by the sounds of it. So you can concentrate the water and at the same time, what you dig is what you get. So you can end up with a big pile of soil that you dug out from the pond. That can be spread out to raise the land. Now you can go as far as to dig canals right the way through the property, which will all hold water. And everywhere you dig a canal, you put up a nicely shaped earth man next to it, which concentrates the land, which it makes it better drained, like, like a large raised bed, but a bigger, bigger than that. So you, you've got, you're raising the land where you're digging the canals and which are intensifying the land and intensifying the water, drying out the land and wetting up the water to be more large enough to be more productive for you. So it only has to hold little fish, little fish, tiny little fish, or eat the mosquito larvae. So it could be an aquatic pond for growing, you know, wild rice or something or, or, you know, some aquatic plant. It, it could be, fish habitat it could be crayfish habitat it could just be ecosystem it could be trellis like a chinampa it could be all kinds of things it can be ponds and and when you put ponds in swamps you get some of the most productive duck systems because they self-forage and more or less feed themselves and, and go into breed cycles that you can harvest so you've got to think out of the box here the problem is the solution and your problem is you've got too much water in small bodies. The solution is to turn that water somehow, drain it off, work the land up so you can get that water to drain off to ponds and canals and interesting systems. You might even be able to set up islands in the middle of ponds, in the middle of canals, canals that ribbon around islands. You know, you don't need a fence to, to hold chickens on an island because they can't, they don't swim. And if you cut one, you know, set of flight feathers on one wing, they can't fly in a straight line anyway. Um, so, you know, you, you, you've got to think about all those things. Then you've got to look at aromatic plants. Are there aromatic plants like citronella grass where I live is pretty repellent of, of flies and, and mosquitoes? So where your habitat is, where your zone one is, where your home garden is, where you need to spend some time outside working your garden and harvesting and things like that, just to drop the intensity, you can put up really scented plants. Now, for yourself, if they're biting you, which you say they are, really what you have to do is you have to distract your personal smell. It's the same with all ticks and leeches and chiggers in the tropics and biting insects. So using some really smelly oils like lavender oil, tea tree oil, eucalyptus oil, lemon myrtle oil, or any oil that's easily available where you are. If, if you use an oil that sort of confuses the smell of the human body, you get, you don't get bitten as much. Now, of course, if you can grow something that you can develop an oil yourself, you can distill quite easily. That's going to help. So it's a combination of all these things, of course, habitat, of course, all the other things that you're already doing. And it sounds like you're on the right track. But just think about concentrating the water and intensifying the land with the same action. And you can have a wonderfully productive system. Think about domestic ducks. Think about stocking with fish, even if they're little ones. But if they're big ones, they might be beneficial to you as well. Um, think about the aromatic plants. Um, and, and, and work out what, what you can do to, to make it easy. And then, of course, then you have to look at strategic, um, approaches at what time of day is most friendly outside, time you work for that. 
etc etc i hope that helps sounds like you've got an interest in property i wouldn't i wouldn't knock it because it's it's too wet i'd say you've got something that could be developed into something very special and definitely increase the value of it to yourself and everybody else okay there you go thanks so i wanted to add a few things here that really don't directly apply to the individual but more to the broader issue with mosquitoes first i completely agree with jeff And if you have water features on your property um, and you want fish to put in there to control your mosquitoes, you can't do better than, you guessed it, mosquito fish. Uh, these are gambrosia. And, and gam, gambusia, gambusia, actually. Um, they are basically a temperate climate guppy. If you look at a, a, a wild female guppy and a mosquito fish, they're very, very similar to the point. If you put male guppies in uh, a fish tank with a female mosquito fish, they will flat harass the hell out of her trying to breed with her, and it just doesn't work. So um, that's, the, that's basically what these things are. I have a link to a site I've bought fish from called Live Aquaria. Uh, they sell them for about a buck and a half a piece. If you buy 12 or more, they're like $1.20. I would not buy this fish. Uh, unless you had to. I more put up a link so you can look at this fish and know what it looks like. The odds are this fish exists somewhere in bodies of water around you in most of the United States. Um, they're actually calling it an invasive species now because it's been put out by, you guessed it, the state itself in a lot of places where it didn't just turn up on its own. This fish causes no problems for anything. All it does is eat mosquitoes and other little things all day long. It's basically a minnow. Every other big fish eats it. And if you can find them and you get them into a large enough uh, body of water and you get some males and females in there, they breed and they breed and they breed and they breed. They are a live bearer. Uh, which means they have a very high survival rate of their offspring. I put probably a hundred of them out of my tanks into the uh, the big timber frame pond, uh, which we put in what a month ago, and it is teeming with them. They are everywhere, and they are a mosquito larva's worst nightmare. That is their preferred food. So as far as fish go, all fish eat mosquitoes, but you know if you have a a system with a lot of fish in it, and they're all big fish like aquaponics or something, uh, you can still have some mosquito issues because big fish generally don't eat um, a lot of uh, little tiny things, little tiny larvae. Um, so just that's, I wanted to start with that as, you know, especially um, water where you really aren't going to have big fish because if you are, you're going to have to have hiding location stuff for your gambrosia. But you put the gambrosia out in any water that they can survive in. And they're a very hardy fish. Uh, you may have some that's more like a ditch. Um, and it might hold water eight months out of the year. You can throw a bunch of them in there. They'll breed. When it dries up, yeah, they'll die. They're fertilizer, you know, but they'll do their job. Uh, some other things that you can consider, good old-fashioned BT mosquito dunks and mosquito bits, which are the, both basically the same uh, thing. This is Bacillus thrungosus. This is a, uh, a bacterium that flat kills mosquitoes dead and specifically kills the hell out of the little wiggler larvas. Uh, I've had them when we had this year. I'm not getting mosquito problems in my swells. Even with all this rain, you know, the, they're holding water for two days at the most, and it's gone, and any wigglers are in there dying and getting baked in the sun. Uh, a few years ago, we had uh, a May 
where it rained 28 days in May of 31 days. And that started a mosquito problem. And it looked like clouds of them in the swales. And I went and threw, you know, my big, my longest swale, I threw four of those dunks, and the other two I threw like two or three. And in a day, it was death. I mean, it was just, you could see black lining the bottom of the swales, dead larva. And that was all high phosphorus fertilizer for my trees. So those do work. Uh, they generally last about two to three weeks, and you have to treat the body of water again. Uh, the last thing, and I don't know how well these are going to work yet, but I was at the feed store, and they are bastards this year. I'm on instant message with my buddy uh, David right now uh, about this because I, I have another device to recommend from him. But and I said, but anyway, I said to David an instant message as, as I'm broadcasting with you guys. The, the, they have fangs this year is what it seems like. They're just assholes. So I was at the feed store picking up some straw bales for my straw bale garden thing, and I saw this thing called Spartan Mosquito Eradicators. And they're these little tubes. And it said if you're already into mosquito season per acre, use four tubes instead of two tubes. So I bought two boxes of them. Didn't really read it. Just figured, hey, you know, it's another product to check out. So I've deployed them. And they've only been out for a couple days. It's supposed to take about 14 to 15 days to really knock the population down. We shall see. Um, my thing about them, and anybody that knows anything about this, maybe you can help me out with this. When I read the ingredients, sugar, salt, and yeast, 100% it says that's the ingredients, sugar, salt, and yeast. It even gives you the percentages of it. I get exactly why this works. Male mosquitoes don't bite. They prefer sugar. Um, so they're going to go in there. And then female mosquitoes are going to go in there because the yeast and the sugar are going to release CO2. And CO2 is the primary way that mosquitoes find you, which is why things like insect repellents and stuff like that keep them away. It's not they keep them away as much. They can't really locate you because they're looking for your CO2 signature. So when that yeast is off-gassing CO2, they're like, mm, yum, 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 and they go in there. So if they just went in there and got trapped, I'd understand, but that's not what happens. I watched a video by the company uh, when they were on a local news uh, affiliate, and it said that they go in there, they feed on it, and they leave and they die. Now, I don't know if the salinity being that high kills them. I don't know if mosquitoes can't handle yeast, or I don't know if there's something in there not telling me. So if anybody knows anything about these traps, let me know, and I'll let you know whether they work or not. Now, my thing is, if sugar, salt, and yeast do this, We can make all these traps ourselves, and it's easy. So that's another thing. And then the last thing, uh, last year when I was up in Tennessee at uh, Nicole Sauce's uh, workshop, the mosquitoes there made the mosquitoes here look like a joke. They had mosquitoes there to try to carry you away. And my buddy David breaks out this little thing. It looks stupid to me when he brought I'm like, this is hokum. Little green thing called the Thermocell MR150 mosquito repeller. And he sets it up, and he's like... For about a 15-foot diameter around that thing, we won't have no mosquitoes bothering us. And son of a gun, it worked. And it emits a smell that you can't detect. I mean, we smelled nothing, you hear nothing, what have you. But what it does is it does exactly what I said about the CO2. It disrupts the mosquito's ability within that radius for them to sense your CO2 so they go elsewhere looking for something to feed upon. That works. So I have links to all that stuff in the show notes. Again, the Spartan traps, I really don't know if they work or not. 
Uh, but I do have them deployed. Okay, so quick update before I wrap up this segment on the Spartan mosquito traps. And David and I are probably going to hang out tomorrow. We're going to have to talk about how the hell these things actually kill mosquitoes. Because he said he'll bring me some uh, mosquito traps he found over that work really, really good around his house. Turns out, and once again, David and I seem to live in each other's heads sometimes, they're the exact ones I was just talking about. He has the exact ones. He says they're working great. So with that, I will say that if you're having mosquito problems and you want to try these, I would I would go ahead and do it because David's like me. If he says something works, it works. So all of that stuff's in the show notes. With that, let's uh, go on to one more here before we have my segment today. Uh, again, everybody's been screaming and freaking out about the yield curve, the 90-day versus 10-year yield curve. I happen to think people need to be looking a little harder at like the five and seven year versus 90 day yield curve myself. I haven't listened to John's segment yet on this, but that's exactly what he's going to talk about. So let's listen to it together. John Pugliano on the yield curve and what the heck that thing is in the first place. And uh, does that mean a recession's coming? Hey, TSP listeners. Today, rather than answering one specific financial question, I want to give you a bit of a market update along with a little bit of commentary And if I have time, I'm going to mention some exchange-traded funds that I think are signaling some very interesting buy points, and they may be something you want to take a look at. Now, right now, the media narrative about the stock market is very negative, and while corporate profits are actually doing quite well, the big concern is all the uncertainty, a lot of it's political uncertainty. And I think more than anything, that's really what's spooking the market. But I don't think things are as bad right now as the media is portraying it. One of the reasons I believe this is that the major concern is the inverted yield curve, which means that short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates. Now, normally, that's an excellent indicator of a pending recession. The yield curve inversion that has preceded all the previous recessions didn't happen spontaneously or organically from the economy. It wasn't a market-driven force. Short-term interest rates rose above long-term interest rates specifically because of Federal Reserve policy. They tightened up the money supply and they raised interest rates. And that quelched the economy. Inverted yield curves just don't happen. They're not spontaneous. They're created. Now, what's different this time around is that the yield curve hasn't been created because the Federal Reserve is trying to squelch economic growth but rather the United States Federal Reserve is trying to maintain stability of our currency in a global monetary system that's plagued by negative interest rates. And so while the U.S. economy is doing fairly well, the economy of other countries aren't, and their interest rates are not only lower than ours, they're in negative territory. Right now, there's almost $13 trillion of foreign central bank loans that are paying negative rates. The 10-year German bond is paying negative 0.17%. So if you lived in Germany, would you be buying a German bond that's paying you a negative yield? Or would you be sending your money to the United States and buying a 10-year U.S. Treasury that's paying 2.2%? Well, of course you'd go for the higher interest rate. And that's exactly what's happening all around the world. And with that literally tens of trillions of dollars of negative interest rates putting pressure and driving down the United States interest rates, it makes our yield curve artificially inverted and it makes it look like our Federal Reserve is suppressing interest rates to spur an economy that's in recession or depression. 
But if you look at the overall money supply, it seems to be in balance. Doesn't seem to be too much nor too little. That's why if you go out and you try and finance a mortgage or apply for a credit card, or if you're a corporation and you want to get a business loan, the money's not only available, but the interest rates are in line with expected growth rates that justify reasonable return on capital. So no, I don't think that these low interest rates are necessarily a harbinger of a slowdown in economic activity nor a recession. Hey, and think about it this way too. If you remember about six months ago, the big fear then was that rising interest rates were going to throw us into recession. So if things aren't falling apart, well, what do you do? Well, hey, I can't make specific investment recommendations for you, but I want to mention some exchange-traded funds that you might want to take a look at. Now, these funds that I'm going to mention represent specific critical areas of the economy that have been going through some rough times. They've been on a downward path of their cyclical cycle. They're all at or well below their 200-day moving average, primarily due to trade war fears with China, and perhaps some of that's overdone. And so it's not to say that they can't go lower, but perhaps they are starting to stabilize, and it could be that these sectors are getting ready to bottom out and regress to their previous mean, which would make their current price an interesting entry point. And so if you want to take a contrarian viewpoint and look at buying into a sector that's cooled off and maybe is starting to bottom out and has a recovery ahead of it, then some of these exchange-traded funds might be for you. I'm not recommending that you buy into these funds. I'm simply encouraging you to look at these sectors of the economy and to see if you think they present interesting opportunities. So here we go real quick. The first fund is XSD. That's the semiconductor industry. The second is XLF. That's the financial sector. The third is XLI. That's the industrial sector. The fourth is XLV. That's healthcare. The fifth is XLB. That's the materials sector. The sixth is XLE. That's the energy sector. And finally, the seventh is IYT, and that's the transportation sector. Well, hey, there you have it. All those funds are either things that I'm either directly or indirectly invested in, or they're on my watch list for a potential purchase. Well, hey, as always, Jack, thanks for the opportunity. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Great stuff from John. Didn't mention those... Uh two to seven year inversion see here's the thing about it everything he said is true and I, i'm glad he, i've been wanting to talk about this but i'm like i need john to talk about this and he just came up with it on his own and did it worked out because i don't know that people would believe me if i explained what he just did because it's one of those things that i guess it's kind of counterintuitive but yeah it's an artificial inversion But everybody keeps running their mouth about this 90 versus 90 day versus 10 year inversion well it's a tenth of a point a tenth of a point. They put these graphs out, and it looks huge. It's the same shit they do with global warming, though. You manipulate the axis. So you can make a little variance look really, really big. But the bigger variance in the neighborhood of uh, two-tenths to a quarter of a point is in the midterm rates. Well, just think about what's going to happen in two years and what's going to happen in six years. And I'm not going to tell you. You should be able to figure out for yourself why there's a... A little propensity to not be so enthused about buying bonds in those midterms right now. Anyway, let's uh, let's talk about some things that I think are really cool. So let's talk about this thing called Airbnb Experiences. This is 
the exact business model I've presented dozens of times. I've talked about side hustles and building a business, and one of the things I've described would be like, let's say that you lived in an area where a lot of people uh, went on vacation for hiking. And you knew places kind of off the trail places and stuff like that. You could set up this experience where, you know, people meet you in the morning and you take them on a hike. But instead of going where everybody goes, you know, these little places like maybe a little hidden cave or a hidden waterfall or something like that. And then, you know, you become this kind of a guide experience like that. Uh, and there's like a bunch of different ways you can do things like that. And uh, just, you know, if you live in a place with a lot of craft breweries, you could actually just set up your own basic tours. We go to these five breweries, and I tell you about the best beers in them, and I know the people there, and you know we have snacks set up in advance and stuff like that, and that allows a person to kind of like let you know offset the responsibility of knowing where things are. And experiences on Airbnb takes that to like another level. So Brian Norton is the guy I found out about this on uh, the MeWe Face, uh, the MeWe uh, TSP Hangout uh, group. And he's set up one. He, of course, he's a coffee roaster. So he, it's called Brian Spills the Beans. And you go in and he makes a little breakfast for you, you know, some cream cheese on a bagel with some salmon or something like that. And goes through and he talks about all the experience that he has in the industry. And, and so that, that kind of sells it. But he goes through, you know, how beans are sourced, how they're selected, et cetera, explains it all to you. And then you go into his roasting room and you pick out your bean or your blend and you make a whole bunch of coffee and actually roast it there. And if you want extra pounds of it, you can do that for $10 a pound. You can send him an image in advance and he'll have them printed out and ready to go on your own bags. It'll be sealed up. So you get this whole experience plus you leave with this custom roasted coffee with your own label on it. That's really cool, isn't it? And so that's that's like expanding his business. So instead of being a side hustle for him, that's like let's add another revenue stream to the business. He's charging three hundred bucks for that, which sounds like a heck of a deal. That's three hundred dollars in revenue. If you get a, a a couple of people that do that once a month, that's six hundred bucks. That's more than gas money, folks. That probably more than covers the electric bill, right? So I mean, it's 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 a good deal. And I started looking around and what's and there's all kinds of cool stuff on there. And the and I've got links to the you know the main experiences page in the show notes, and I've got a link right down to Brian's particular uh, experience that he's offering, so you can see kind of how he's marketing and what he's doing it. And so my call out to a lot of you guys who have been looking for a side hustle is look around you. What resources are available in your area that you could harness to do something like this? Because the difference between what I've been teaching for ten years. And this is this is a scalable marketplace. That's the difference. So you would have to, if you wanted to do what I've been talking about doing all these years, you have to set up your, and I still think you might want to set up your own website and stuff like that, but you really have to heavily market what you have because whenever you set up a business, if you don't have a storefront and a sign on a road with cars going by it, you have to think about any kind of virtual business or even a, a brick-and-mortar business that's not really brick-and-mortar. What I mean by that is you interact with people and you either exchange a product or a service, you know, hand to hand. Um, even in that case, if you don't have, you know, pass through traffic or whatever, or you just have a website people buy on, then you got to think about it this way. You know that land they sell for like five dollars an acre in, in in West Texas. I don't think it's quite that cheap, but it's super cheap. And a lot of it, there's not even any roads to it. It's kind of landlocked around landlocked type stuff. 
Imagine you had a great store sitting out there in the middle of the desert with no signs and no roads. So when you first put up a website or any kind of online presence, that's what you have. You have a Walmart in the middle of the desert with no signage. And you have to think about all the things that you do, whether it's social media, search engine marketing, etc. You're literally building roads. My roads are coming to my store, and you're building signage so that the car driving by goes, hey, I can stop here and get gas. So what this does is it creates basically an eBay for experiences or a Craigslist for experiences tied into one of the most popular websites out there today, Airbnb, for people who are traveling, which in general is exactly the people that you want to find. Though I started looking around locally, and there wasn't anything really attractive to me, but I was like, there's some stuff here that I think would work. And I think that as you build a brand and as you build a presence in this, you might attract an equal number of people that are in town who decided I'm going to rent an Airbnb while I'm in Dallas and I'm going to be there for this business meeting, uh, but I'm going to sp spend a couple extra days there and let me see what I can do. And the, the thing I love about experience is it's really good for people that have like a day or two in a place that's not generally a big tourist draw. There's not a lot to do. I mean, Dallas is a, a cool city and all. There's not a lot of tourist draw in Dallas. You got the aquarium, you got the zoo, uh, and Fort Worth. You know, they're cool towns. They're just not. I mean, you got the stockyards. It's all right. You got really shitty barbecue there at Brisky's Barbecue. I I hate it that people come here, and they go to that damn barbecue place down at the stockyards, and they think that's Texas barbecue. So that that is crap compared to good Texas barbecue. You, you might as well go to, like, Spring Creek or Dickies or something, a chain. You'll get better than you will at that dump. Um, good staff and nice people, but their quality is just crap. So, you know, there's not a lot here, but if you're going to be here, I think it's going to become a thing that people use Airbnb. or like, well, let's see what I can do while I'm there. So I, I'm more excited about the potential for side hustle for you guys, and I wanted you to know about it. And look around. I mean, one lady down in Arlington, she's doing cooking experiences at her house. So I'm, she's really not even geared toward the traveler so much as she's geared toward the local audience. And I was like, that's pretty basic, so I'm not going, but I can see a lot of people that would. What can you do? And I think the number one way to figure that out is get on there and look at what other people are doing. And then figure out what does that mean for you. Now, let's talk about this social media thing. Now, look, I'm going to say straight up, out of the gate, I know there are those of you that you don't touch social media, you hate social media, it's the devil. I hope It's okay. It's okay. You don't have to be involved with this. I, I don't mind. Um, I personally think social media, when used correctly, is a really great way for people to exchange information. Without social media, I wouldn't have known about uh, the Airbnb experiences that I just told you about. That's how I found out about it. So I think it can be very good. Um, Facebook has gone off the deep end as far as I'm concerned at this point. We have started to have in our Facebook forum group on Facebook, which is a private group. You can ask to join, but we have to approve you. Everybody in that group is approved. We don't have, we're not out in anybody's public feeds. You can't share content from our group out to the public. You have to be part of the group. We have had Facebook admins come into our group and remove content. And if that wasn't enough, because when I found that out, I was pissed. Like, what? We have a whole team of admins and moderators. 
And we do a really good job. And trust me, if somebody's putting like, you know, completely racist hatred bullshit in there, we're going to get rid of it. But they, they've decided to take it upon themselves to, to basically unauthorized come into my group and our other groups too and remove content. Now they leave it so we can see that they've done it. And we can see what it was. If that wasn't bad enough, I have heard from some of my moderators who are in other groups and from other people that have groups that are 100% invitation-only groups. This means you can't even see that the group exists. So I'm in a couple of groups like that that I was specifically invited to. And in those groups, Facebook is going into those groups and removing content. When you add up all the other stuff they're doing, like feeding information to the government, sharing your information with advertisers, I would love to just be done, but I can't just be done. I got too big of a presence there, but I want to start this migration, and we're doing MeWe Mondays. So here's how MeWe Mondays work. You join MeWe, and on MeWe on Mondays, you give Facebook the middle finger and just take one day a week and don't be on Facebook. Originally, I was like, what I'm going to do is I'll still throw my shows up, And, 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 you know, on, on Facebook. I'll just throw them up. I won't interact, but I'll at least, I am going to not look at, touch, or breathe near Facebook on Mondays. I'm going to 100% be on MeWe on Mondays. And I would like to invite y'all to do that. Now, you don't have to do it 100%. You can participate. You say, I'll make sure I'm on MeWe on Mondays and I'm still going to do my other stuff. It's fine. I understand. I get it. Um, but, and if you don't use social media, then this doesn't apply to you. Okay. Uh, but you might want to consider it, because I'm going to tell you, MeWe has impressed me, number one, with their business model. They sell additional services, including something called MeWe Pro that you can check out. That's basically designed to be a replacement for a company intranet. They have a privacy pledge where they pledge not to give away your information. They have a pledge to you that your content belongs to you. And you can, if you want to quit, close your account, take your content with you, you can um, the whole pledge is on the write-up that I did uh, on the blog today. And I'm just going to tell you my biggest thing about MeWe. When I go on Facebook, honest to God, I get angry. I see the same political tribalism back and forth nonstop. And the same crap that I read three weeks ago just keeps getting regurgitated in, into, my, into my feed. Even though it's something I haven't commented on or liked, just haven't even paid attention to. But I keep seeing the same crap. On the other hand, I'll see something I find interesting, accidentally click something, and then I can't find it again. It's gone, like a, like a fart in the wind. You can't. MeWe puts everything that your contacts share publicly in chronological order. And if you want, you can change the setting so stuff will get bumped to the top when people comment on it. It's up to you how that works. But... I mean, I'm sick of my wife saying, I posted these pretty pictures of Tegan on Facebook today. Did you see them? I'm like, no, but I saw the same orange man, bad, orange man, good debate 78 times that I don't want any, that I don't have any interest in, even though I said I don't want to see it anymore because somebody else posted it. And half the shit I see isn't even from my followers and people I follow, but it's from friends of a friend type thing that one of my friends commented and all of a sudden they shove it in front of me. Because Facebook has basically made a determination on what you are politically. And they're feeding you content based on what they think you either will comment on because you agree or comment on because you disagree. They're basically performing mental experimentation on people is what they're doing now. And I would love to just walk, but I can't. But this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this MeWe Monday thing. 
Uh, I've already asked Pete, Pete Mance Raymond and Vin Armani to maybe consider doing it too. I'm going to reach out to other influencers, especially after we do this about a month and we can show something that's going on. And I'm going to ask other influencers, hey, can you follow our lead? You don't have to do it 100%. Can we just do this MeWe Monday thing? I think once people get to using it, I think they'll like it better. And I'm just happier when I'm on MeWe. I'm seeing a lot more posts about people's dogs and kids and you know what they're cooking for dinner and, and what have you. And a person that wants to be political there can, and they don't have to worry about a banhammer coming down on them from the owner of the damn platform. But... It seems like most of the people over there are people that are done. They're just tired of what Facebook's all about. And they want to be able to communicate with people. They want a familiar platform. They want to share information. They want to see what other people are up to. They want to participate in group conversations. But they don't want the bullshit. And for now, anyway, that's what me, we seems to offer. So I have some long-term thoughts on this. But I'm asking you if you'll consider taking the first step with me. Um... Since I made a video last night that went into the Facebook forum that I may get banned from Facebook for, for all I know, um, my contact list grew by almost 500 people on MeWay in a day. We're getting some traction, and things are starting to look really cool, and we're starting to get a lot of activity in the groups. So I put up an article today about this. It has my contact information and uh, my contact uh, page on MeWe and what have you. Uh, I have a link to just to MeWe Pro, to my MeWe profile in today's show notes, but I'll also link to that article. And remember, the way you make sure you get all my articles, all the stuff that sometimes doesn't make it on the show, but it's on the blog or what have you or on YouTube, just subscribe to the Daily Mail. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on subscribe. You can do that there, and you will uh, be able to, you know, to, to stay in touch and, and see everything that's going on. And it, I'm, I'm a lot more like me than Facebook, guys. I'm not going to share your information. You're not going to get spammed. I usually send one email a day, and it just says, here's all things happening today. Here's two links, three links, five links, whatever it is. And you look at what you want to, and you don't look at what you don't want. And there's a little thing at the bottom that says, I don't want this anymore. You click the unsubscribe link, and it goes away. I don't even control that. It's run by Aweber, so it's automated. It's easy. There you go. Um, now, if you like the show and the work that we do, one of the ways you can support us is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You see all the products I've reviewed on Amazon. You can see the deals of the day on Amazon, all that good stuff. As long as you go there first, you help support the show no matter what you buy. Today's product of the day is uh, premium gochujang uh, Hot pepper paste. Uh, the particular brand that I have is the language is in Korean, so I can't pronounce it. Uh, this is a Korean condiment, basically. It is a fermented chili paste, and this stuff is a big time flavor bringer to the party. Um, I give a few recipes and whatnot in the article right up on it today, but let me tell you, when I took this stuff along with a little bit of black bean paste, and mixed it into ground meat that was a mixture of venison and wild pork, my wife, who had resisted eating wild game for her whole life, ate one meatball, and that was it. It was on. And she'll ask me, can you make those things again? Can you make those things again? That's how good this stuff is. Give it a shot. Again, gochujang is a hot pepper paste. I learned about it on a show called Korean Food Made Simple uh, with a chick named Judy Ju as the chef. Uh, I really didn't get a big affinity for her. But I did learn about some really cool ingredients, and this is probably the biggest win out of that, so check it out. Also consider joining the Members Brigade. You help support the show. You can learn more about that just by going to the survivalpodcast.com.
Facebook.com and clicking on members. And that brings us to our song of the day today. And we're finishing up Boyce Avenue uh, week. And I've, I've kept, kept mentioning like how popular this group is, even though I've never heard of them. How popular are they? They have 12 million subscribers to their YouTube channel. And they have a lot of original music, but they've done a lot of acoustic covers. And, the, and they've done fantastic jobs with them. And the one that they've done for today, or the one that they've done that we've selected for today, is like you got to believe that you're good to do this song because everybody knows exactly what it is supposed to sound like because the song is by John Lennon and it's Imagine. And it is one of my favorite songs that's ever been written. And it's one of those songs that's so fanciful And the belief that one day humanity could work that way, that people tend to, uh, if they're of a certain bent, just write it off and saying, yeah, my, the song might sound good, but come on, that's not a realistic uh, destination. The way I look at having a goal like is spoken about in this song, to get to a point where everybody can get along. I mean, that's what this song is really about, that everybody can get along. And maybe you don't even agree with the methodology to getting there, but that's what it's about. Everybody can get along. And if you look at the world as a place of extensive conflict, you may think that's impossible. Well, how do you get a kid that really can jump over a three-foot hurdle who keeps failing to jump over a three-foot hurdle to get over the three-foot hurdle? You give him a three-foot, six-inch hurdle to try to get over for a while, and you put it back to three foot, and he jumps right over it. If you don't have a goal bigger than yourself, regardless of what it is. And if you don't have a goal beyond what you actually can reach, then you'll never go as far as you can or jump as high as you can or achieve as much as you can. Set lofty goals for yourself. Set lofty goals for your communities. Set lofty goals for humanity. Do your best to reach them, and even if you don't, you will go further, higher, and farther than you ever thought you could. Good way to wrap up the week. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No heaven.
Someday you'll join us. 